The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking investment insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. Welcome to Episode 5 of In The Know. As we reach the end of a quite extraordinary year, investment markets continue to respond to global events that a few short months ago could not have been predicted with any certainty. Who would have thought at the start of this pandemic that vaccines would be rolled out before year-end? It's happening. The US has a new president come January, but what changes are likely in 2021 and how might investors be impacted? This year has also seen rampant growth in e-commerce as a result of online activity through COVID-19. But how should investors view the powerful internet giants that dominate this space? For answers, we turn now to the investment team at Magellan to distill and dissect these key areas of interest. This episode is hosted by key account manager Jennifer Herbert. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of our podcast Magellan in the Know. My name's Jennifer Herbert. I'm a key account manager in Magellan's distribution team. For this episode, as we round out the year, we dig further into Magellan's investment team and the outlook for two notable sectors in our portfolio, healthcare and technology. We also turn our attentions to the macro picture forming in the months ahead. This episode is made up of three 10-minute interviews. We have John Wiley, Magellan's head of healthcare, Arvid Strymon, our head of macro, and Ryan Joyce, co-head of Magellan's technology team. John, welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's great to connect today, Jen. John, we've now had the chance to see more complete vaccine trial data and the regulator's response to the first successful candidate in the vaccine race. What has Magellan learned from this increased transparency? Well, Jen, we certainly have had a lot of incremental transparency. And the transparency in many ways is completely unprecedented as well. On the 10th of December, the FDA convened a meeting of their advisory committee to consider emergency use authorization for Pfizer's mRNA vaccine candidate. And why that's so interesting, or unprecedented rather, is because we have the full regular submissions that Pfizer have made to the regulator. We have the regulator's full report on how they've interpreted Pfizer's submission. We have also had access to a very public forum with America's leading experts who advise the FDA on matters to do with vaccine approvals debated all of that information in a very public way. And that was a very interesting conversation for us to review. The highlights from that conversation were really threefold. The first is with respect to efficacy. We saw very few surprises from this final data sample with respect to efficacy. And indeed, the only debate that was noteworthy with respect to efficacy, in my view, was whether or not the data on efficacy could appropriately extend to a view on whether the vaccine prevents severe disease. There's very good evidence that it prevents symptomatic disease, but whether that extends to severe disease or not was a robust debate. In my view, the balance of risks there is pretty clear. The second issue that was subject 
and appropriately so to the vast majority of the committee's deliberations was a debate on the safety profile of the vaccine. And so on that issue, the committee was looking whether or not they could use data from the history of safety profiles and vaccine development and make some inferences around the safety profile of this mRNA vaccine for certain patients where the data in the 40,000 person phase three trial might not have provided a sufficiently large sample of statistically significant information for very narrowly defined patient cohorts. And so I'm thinking about nursing home residents, for example. There's a lot of data that the vaccine was appropriately safe in elderly people, but it doesn't extend to that niche aged care or nursing home patient population, for example. Those sorts of debates were, in my view, appropriately solved by regulators applying a risk-benefit lens to the emergency use authorization approval, and that's something we always thought would happen. So it was constructive to see that play out. There was also a rigorous safety debate with respect to how the other end of the age spectrum, how much more data is required before the vaccine can be made available to younger teenagers, for example. And then there's a lot of work still to go to try and build the data to get comfortable that maybe a vaccine can be re-engineered for children or as a paediatric vaccine. We have a lot of clarity on many of those safety issues. Certainly for most of the population, that clarity exists or was the prerequisite rather to emergency use authorization. But that emergency use authorization might allow approximately 20% of Americans to get vaccinated at a guess. But the broader population approval or the BLA process, that's still very much pending. And there's a pretty hard flaw based on the vaccine advisory committee's deliberations of a probably six months minimum in order to have sufficient conviction in a larger sample of safety data and more longitudinal data. You're just following the people for longer before this vaccine will be eligible for a BLA submission and a population-wide approval that would follow should the FDA opine constructively on Pfizer's future BLA submission. I'm personally hoping that with a vaccine, we'll be allowed to travel overseas again soon. Is it too early for us to get excited? Well, Jen, the vaccine is certainly useful in providing a pathway to travel overseas without the current frictions with respect to hotel quarantine and so forth that you're faced with, certainly on the Australian leg of that journey. The role a vaccine will play here is twofold. The first pathway where the vaccine helps to assist in removing travel frictions is where local populations are able to vaccinate and thereby build herd immunity. And there is a threshold for 60 or 70% of the population to be vaccinated in order for that herd immunity to be established. And when herd immunity is established, then there is an easier path to frictionless global travel, which is everyone's dream. But the shortcut beyond achieving herd immunity would be to have clarity that the vaccine is useful in preventing asymptomatic infection. So the current vaccine trials have built very good evidence that if you get the vaccine, you're much, much less likely to find yourself in hospital fighting severe disease or moderate disease for that matter. But the trials didn't test whether or not you would be infected, but asymptomatic rather, even if you'd had the vaccine. And why that matters from a hotel quarantine or travel perspective is there isn't current proof that the vaccine prevents asymptomatic infection. Therefore, there's a risk that even if you've had the vaccine and you've been abroad, you could still be infected or be asymptomatic. So you're fine, 
but the population you're coming back into or visiting might not be fine to the extent that they haven't also had their dose of the vaccine. So we really need clarity on whether or not the vaccine is effective in preventing asymptomatic infection to some substantial degree. And should that clarity emerge, then a lot of the travel restrictions that are currently in place could be arguably more easily unwound with help from science. The pathway to get that evidence will leverage the existing trials, which are still currently ongoing, despite having hit that phase three endpoint. Of course, the studies continue for some duration going forward. And how that will work is the studies will test their blood using what's known as a serology test to see if they've got antibodies that are unrelated to the vaccine. And that is reasonable evidence that that patient has suffered an asymptomatic infection. And the idea will be to prove that the vaccine has significant efficacy in helping patients avoid asymptomatic infection. So we'd hope to see all of those asymptomatic infections or significantly more of them rather in the placebo arm of those trials. So that work is underway and also some additional work using index case households and so forth in order to build the evidence that we'd need to have clarity on whether or not the vaccine solves for asymptomatic infection in a substantial way. And if it does, then that's incrementally better news for your question on global travel, because with infection solved, then the prerequisite for herd immunity might not be so overwhelming as a policy input into government decisions on border frictions. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed that the vaccine behaves the way we'd like it to, and we can visit loved ones and start ticking off the bucket list again. Now, considering the success of Pfizer... How important is it for us to follow progress on the other vaccine developments? Jen, I think it is really important that we follow progress for all of the vaccine candidates that currently remain in the race with a credible potential solution. And the reason for that is twofold. The first reason is the more candidates that find success in a very proven way with respect to efficacy and safety, the more candidates there are where we have that proof, the more global supply is available in the near term. And clearly the world is incredibly constrained with respect to supply at the current time, and more supply obviously helps solve that macroeconomic friction sooner. The second reason is the mRNA solutions are not particularly well suited to being used in healthcare systems which don't have world-class infrastructure. So some of the non-mRNA solutions are much better placed should they find success to enable vaccinations outside of the developed world. And that's an important facet of achieving global immunity. However, we have had a recent setback with respect to one major program from Sanofi and GSK, which has recently announced that their phase two data, which was relying on a similar vaccine technology to your annual flu shot. So it's something we thought we understood very well. That phase two data has revealed that their vaccine didn't deliver sufficient protection against COVID-19 to anybody over the age of 49 years old. And to me, that is a very salient reminder of the binary scientific risks that we're trying to solve in parallel or trying to get knowledge on in parallel over the course of these phase three trials. Novartis remains a core healthcare holding. Can you update us on the investment considerations for this global fund holding? The key issue we have been grappling with for Novartis over the last quarter or so, has been the impact of rolling lockdowns globally on how easy it is for patients to visit their physician. So 
from the depths of the original crisis where patient visitation to their physician fell by over 70%, we've recovered to a point where patients are currently seeing their doctors about 10 to 20% less than they used to this time last year for certain medical conditions. The key example I'm referencing there is probably dermatology. And because patients aren't seeing their physicians as frequently, the ability of those physicians to move their patients to new, better, more efficacious medicines is compromised. And because Novartis's primary business is bringing highly innovative new medicines to market that deliver better outcomes for patients, those patients do need to see their doctor in order to change their prescription to a new standard of care. So some of these lockdowns are frustrating Novartis's growth but they certainly haven't frustrated Novartis's current revenue. It's really only a question of an adverse impact on their growth profile. And that does have some minor permanent impact on valuation. But given we seek to allocate capital with a three to five year investment horizon, looking through the short term frictions on a patient's ability to visit their doctor is something that we're very well placed to do and very happy to do. The reason why we're very comfortable holding the Novartis position at the current price is because we think we have very conservatively modelled a number of Novartis's key therapeutic areas where growth in those therapeutic areas is going to offset patent expiries that occur in approximately 2024. And so we think we have conservative forecasts which underwrite continued growth across the whole franchise, even when those patent expiries occur. And should those conservative forecasts prove to be accurate, then we also think there is substantial unpriced option value on some of Novartis's major earlier stage pipeline assets, gene, cell and nuclear medicine emerging opportunities, and also some latent option value for indication expansion for some of their current best-in-class assets. How are you directing Magellan's healthcare research effort for the year ahead? Well, Jen, the fundamental tenant behind our universe construction for healthcare is that we would never expose any of our investors to what we would regard as binary risk, which can't be appropriately diversified at the company level. So that tenant holds true across each of the three subsectors in the healthcare world. With respect to pharma, we have a very narrow and carefully defined universe of globally diversified pharmaceutical businesses. Of course, we continue to monitor that actively but it hasn't been an incredibly prospective path for incremental capital deployment. The healthcare infrastructure subsegment is something where we find the volume predictability to be incredibly interesting, but the quirk with that subsector, and I'm referencing businesses like HCA, which we've spoken about before, and Fresenius Medical Care in that bucket, for example, those businesses have incredibly predictable volume post-crisis but a significant degree of regulatory risk, and so come with relatively elevated risk metrics for that reason. So while we are very comfortable in the long-term quality of earnings for those businesses, and to some extent have got more comfortable with some of the political risk given recent developments, albeit there's a little bit of water to go under the bridge on the US Senate in relation to the Georgia runoffs, the decision to bring those companies back into the portfolios in meaningful size is inextricably linked to how we balance the risk considerations on those assets. And then finally, for medical devices and unique growth, which I bundled together as our third major bucket, we're doing a lot of very interesting work there. 
It's probably the most prospective path for incremental capital deployment over a three to five year horizon in my view. In particular, we're doing a lot of work on whether we can better access the genomic medicine revolution via some of those healthcare medical device or unique growth profile businesses. Thanks for your comments and insights on the healthcare sector, John. Undoubtedly a sector dominated by the vaccine news and next year will likely look quite different as a result. As we look towards 2021, I'd now like to introduce Arvid Strymon, our Head of Macro, to take us through his views on what will dominate markets in the coming year. Arvid, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jen, and it's great to be chatting to you again. Arvid, with the US election now behind us and some very encouraging vaccine results on the table, the investment outlook has become much brighter, particularly compared to earlier this year. Can you talk us through this, please? When we're thinking about investment risk, there were two material events which happened in the past couple of months. And the first one, which you pointed out, was around the vaccine. And the vaccine trial results which came out, they were much better than anyone could have anticipated. And to some extent, they came quicker than what people would have anticipated. If you think back to earlier this year when the COVID disease was spreading around the world and it was becoming a pandemic, a lot of people were thinking that, you know what, it's really going to be quite hard to find a vaccine because we've been trying to find a vaccine for HIV and AIDS for decades and we still don't have one of those. So it's highly unlikely that we're going to get a COVID vaccine anytime soon. As it turns out, the trial results were much better than anyone could have expected. They were over 90% effective, over 95% effective, really. And that was much better than people expected. It came faster than what people expected. And the real reason why that is important is because if there is a vaccination rollout program and people get vaccinated at the rates at which allows economies to reopen, then economies can reopen. And I think a lot of the economic risk that you've been seeing as caused by COVID has been caused by people not being able to have a job, maybe not going to work as much as they used to. And of course, the businesses not earning as much money as they had in the past. So that COVID vaccine results are materially de-risked the investment outlook from that perspective. But just remember that it hasn't been de-risked completely. There are some people who will choose not to take the vaccine. There are some people who may choose not to take the second jab or perhaps forget to take the second jab. And of course, when we're thinking about the rollout of the vaccine, not just within a country, but also globally, there's always going to be some people who get it first and some people who get it towards the end. So there are still some sources of uncertainty. But if you're thinking about COVID and the investment implications of COVID, then the negative investment implications have materially reduced. The second thing that's happened in the past couple of months is the US general election, and it would have been hard to miss that, of course. And coming into the US general election, one of the things that we were monitoring very closely was the likelihood that the Democratic Party, which Joe Biden is a part of, would not just win the White House, but it would also control both chambers of Congress. So here, the House of Representatives and the Senate. As it turned out, They did not get all three arms of government. They didn't get the Senate. The Republicans maintained control of the Senate. And the reason why that's important is because the Democratic Party, there was a chance if they got all three arms of government that they would push through some legislation or new laws, essentially, that would permanently 
and materially reduce corporate profitability. That didn't happen. So that risk is materially reduced at the moment. And their election result is not strong enough for them to perhaps even have a mandate to try to launch those new pieces of legislation. So if we're thinking about investment risk more generally, we would say that the vaccination news reduced economic risk. And if you want to think about what impact that has had on companies and corporates, we would say that their revenue outlooks have firmed up and improved. When it comes to the election, we would say that what's happened there is the removal of a large amount of political risk means that margins would not be under pressure. So those revenues, which are now more certain and higher, should drop down into profits in much the same fashion as they did in the past. And the risk was that they would be dropping down in a smaller fashion and that risk is off the table. So our risk appetite has gone up as a consequence of that. So we're much more comfortable taking on higher equity exposures now. So if COVID risk and economic risk around the election has significantly reduced, as we've discussed, what other risks are you focusing on now? Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, there is always something to worry about. And so when we're thinking about what the other risks out there may be, there are some that have always been out there, but in relative terms, given that those two economic risk and political risk have gone down, I guess in some relative sense, these risks that I'm about to talk about have gone up, even though they may still be the the same level in absolute terms. The first one would be around the US-China relationship and perhaps even China's relationship with the rest of the Western world. We know that when President Donald Trump was confronting China over their trade practices and a lot of other things a couple of years ago, there was some volatility in investment markets because of that. Now, when we think forward about what the investment implications of a Biden presidency are going to be with respect to the US-China relationship, of course, it's the White House, which largely sets the tone in international relationships rather than Congress. We're relatively optimistic because Joe Biden has a more traditional governing style than Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump was much more erratic and he did that on purpose, of course. And secondly, in domestic politics, Joe Biden has shown that he's willing to reach across the aisle to his Republican colleagues to try and get bills passed and things happening. Now, that's not a huge stretch to say that he may try and do the same thing to China reach across the ocean, so to speak, to try and get this relationship back on track. So Joe Biden becoming president, and of course, it's president in January, not right now. Hopefully that provides an off-ramp for the current heightened tension between the US and China and perhaps also some other countries as well. You mentioned some other risks that we might be thinking about. Of course, there's always risks within Europe. The Europeans, the individual countries here I'm talking about, have a long history of taking a long time to agree on things and perhaps extraordinary long time to agree on things. And those frictions that we saw most notably with Italy a couple of years ago, they are always still on the table. And those risks, we would say, are probably reduced slightly because people tend to disagree and fight more when growth is slow or there's less economic growth to spread around, but they still exist. So that's something that we're watching closely. The third thing that I would mention in terms of risks would be inflation and interest rates. And the the way that we would describe our view on inflation risk is that it's reduced, but it's changed shape. So a couple of years ago, we were alert to the heightened risk of upside inflationary pressures and therefore interest rate pressures because largely of capacity constraints. And the way to think about that in terms of the labour market is if the unemployment rate is very low, perhaps there's going to be some wage pressures which could push up inflation. Now, with COVID, 
we would say that the capacity constraints, not only in the labour market, but also in more broadly saying factories, has reduced a lot. So we're less worried about that source of inflation and interest rates. And that's the reason why we would say that inflationary risks have reduced. But I also mentioned that they've also changed shape. And the new shape that we're talking about here is central bank financed government deficits. And what we're thinking about here is when the governments were handing out their fiscal relief packages, they had to borrow the money from somewhere. And central banks helped them out with their quantitative easing or QE programs by purchasing those bonds. And what that did was increase the money supply, which in the medium to longer term could increase inflationary pressures. So that's one thing that we're watching. That's, as I mentioned, a medium to longer term risk, but it's something that I think clearly investors have to think about. It sounds like you could also be talking about modern monetary theory. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Modern monetary theory or MMT is a very similar risk. And essentially what happens there is that it becomes normal for governments to ask their central banks to finance their government deficits. And it's a bit of a balancing act. It doesn't necessarily, according to its proponents, lead to higher inflation. In fact, it's designed not to, but it's always going to increase the risk of inflation. And so that's something that we're watching carefully. And the reason why is we all know that politicians would like to spend more money, not less money. And if they can get some free money to spend, well, that'd be great. I think one thing about politicians is they like to follow the path of least resistance. So free money is a path of least resistance, we would say. Finally, Arvid, what are the implications of all of this? And how does it change the way you think about investment risk? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Jen. So when we're thinking about investment risk, I've talked about high-level macro risks in my previous comments and made the argument that perhaps those risks have reduced in size and potentially also I think it's fair to say that they've changed shape as well. So in terms of overall investment risk, if the macro piece has reduced and changed shape, then perhaps some non-macro investment risks are increasing in relative importance. And if you're thinking about those, which we do, perhaps they are risks at the industry level or perhaps at the company-specific level that have become relatively more important. And perhaps some of those, of course, might be in the regulation space. We know that if companies are doing particularly well in new industries, they tend to run the risk of being on the wrong side of the regulator. So I think it's for investors what the reduction in macro risk means that perhaps you need to start thinking a little bit more, paying a little bit more attention to some of these industry risk factors and company level factors for their investment portfolios. It's really interesting to hear your views on the evolution of the macro picture in the coming year with the US election now behind us and positive developments in the COVID vaccine space. One sector that may experience increased attention in 2021 is the technology sector. And to help us understand what's ahead, I'd like to introduce our co-head of technology, Ryan Joyce. Welcome, Ryan, and thanks for joining us. No problem, Jennifer. Ryan, last time you and I caught up, we discussed our expectations of Alphabet and Facebook through COVID. Have these stocks behaved the way we expected them to? Certainly, I would say both companies have actually performed better than what we'd expected. And there's a couple reasons for that. And I'll start with the reasons that are common to both companies and then talk a little bit about the performance of each company. So starting with why they performed better, the first thing I'd point to is the government response we've seen through this crisis. Early on, there were legitimate concerns regarding the economic impact that COVID would have. It's obviously been very significant, but it could have been much worse. And we saw governments respond quite early 
to help protect household budgets and balance sheets and ensure that the consumer could continue to spend on goods and services that were still open during this period. And so what that meant is that businesses still wanted to advertise, they still wanted to reach those consumers. So we saw consumer spending hold up quite well. And encouragingly, we now have positive vaccine results, which provide that path to reopening. So that's point one. The second point is unique dynamics of COVID obviously benefited Facebook and Alphabet to some extent. We obviously had the closure of brick and mortar retail and lockdown that meant people couldn't go outside as much. So people were spending more time online and spending more of their money online via e-commerce. And reflecting that, we saw merchants shift their budgets and their kind of attention online as well. And to reach people online, obviously, these are two of the most important businesses in the world, and they saw some benefit from that. They've also lent into this trend. So we saw Facebook, uh, for example, release Facebook and Instagram shops a little bit earlier than it would have, which helps convert traffic on its platform all the way from advertising through to purchase. And we also saw Alphabet take some steps to increase the attractiveness of its Google shopping platform. In terms of the individual companies, if we look at Alphabet, they were growing revenue around 20% going into COVID and and that hit a bit of a wall in Q2, slowing to 0%. But we saw a a strong bounce back in Q3 to 15% and we're seeing continued acceleration coming through. One part of their business that is yet to recover is the travel vertical, which is a large business for them, around 10% of their advertising revenue is our estimate. But with those vaccines coming, we expect that to recover as well. Now, on the non-advertising part of its business, those parts have also performed well. So Play Store is benefiting from that shift in activity online. And we've also seen Google Cloud Platform maintain its growth above 40% through this period. And Google's actually announced that they're going to break out the profitability of that business going forward, which we also think is quite positive. In terms of Facebook, they were growing a little bit faster coming into COVID. So they were growing around 24%. They also decelerated to 10%, but bounced back to 22% in Q3. And they've actually guided to faster growth in Q4. Now, it's quite interesting. If you think coming into this, we were expecting their growth to decelerate. Exiting the year, they're going to be growing faster than what we'd anticipated, even before the impact of COVID. So those positive dynamics that I've spoken about that played to the strengths of Facebook and Alphabet have actually offset that economic impact. There's been added pressure around regulation, especially for Facebook, with lots of focus on social implications. Do you see this as Facebook's greatest current challenge? Absolutely. I think regulatory risk and navigating the regulatory landscape is probably the greatest challenge, not just currently, but for the next decade for Facebook. These issues aren't going to go away. They operate in a lot of countries and there's a lot of different opinions and views on how they should be addressed. In terms of the specific regulatory risks that Facebook is facing, I bucket them in kind of four main areas. So those include antitrust, data privacy, platform security, and content moderation. So I might just discuss each of those in turn. If we start with antitrust, the FTC filed a lawsuit against Facebook alleging anti-competitive practices and asking the courts to require Facebook to actually divest Instagram and WhatsApp. I'll just make three points on that lawsuit. The first is that, interestingly, the share price didn't move on that news. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that people were already expecting this. There'd been rumors that this lawsuit was coming for many months. And so it's not surprising. The second is that we think it's quite likely that Facebook will prevail in court. So they've already said they're going to challenge it. These acquisitions were previously approved by the FTC. 
We think it's also going to be difficult for the FTC and its lawsuit to establish direct consumer harm, which is what's required in the US to force this separation. Also, just from a perspective of competition, we think there is meaningful competition for user attention and time spent online. The final point, it's an important one, is is the downside we think is relatively limited, even if they were to lose the case and we did see a forced separation. Facebook and Instagram by themselves are very valuable businesses. And even if there were to be some cost duplication as a result of the separation, we think it'd be quite manageable for the two businesses. There's also, we think, very little in Facebook's current share price for WhatsApp. This is a a messaging service with over 2 billion users globally. It's probably loss-making at the moment, but we think valued independently on public markets, it would be worth a lot of money. So we don't see that as a value destructive event, even if it were to occur. The next issue is data privacy. This is obviously something that's getting increased attention and rightly so. We've seen regulation come through in places like Europe and California in particular, but also in many other jurisdictions that restrict the ability to not just of Facebook, but all companies to kind of gather and share data. And we're seeing Apple also play a role in trying to limit that data sharing and gathering by third parties. And Facebook itself is taking some proactive steps in terms of providing options to users to limit the use of data for ad targeting or delete their data or the so-called right to be forgotten. And we expect those trends to continue. They do provide a modest headwind to ad prices, but we think they're quite manageable, particularly for Facebook, which has a lot of its own data. So it's not as reliant on third-party data as many other platforms or publishers. The next one is platform security. And this, to some extent, was a big issue a few years ago. There were instances of proven foreign government interference in domestic issues. This was a very sensitive issue and something that Facebook needed to solve. They've invested heavily in that area over the past few years, and it seems to be an area that they've largely addressed. So it's an area that they need to stay on top of, but something that we don't think is going to create too many challenges going forward. The final point is one around content moderation. So that's including things like fake news, bullying, graphic content that people just don't want to see on those platforms. And this is a very difficult issue because it's a gray area and different parts of uh, politics and different people want different things. In the US, the, the Republicans want less stuff taken down. The Democrats want more stuff taken down. And Facebook's kind of stuck in the middle and unable to please either side. And so you have different solutions being put forward, and but nothing really happening. And Facebook's asking for some clear rules to be set out by the government that it can follow rather than trying to make the rules itself. But whether that happens is hard to say. We think it's probably more likely that you could maintain the status quo of trying to manage both sides without too much progress. But certainly a lot of regulatory issues that Facebook needs to navigate. Turning to our Chinese tech holdings, Alibaba and Tencent, we've discussed the growth opportunities we see here at length. There now seems to be much in the media about tech regulation within China, and we've recently seen the Ant Financial IPO pulled as a direct result. Do we see this as problematic for our thesis on both these Chinese holdings? We don't, and I'll elaborate a little bit on why that is. The first point, I think it's important not to conflate the anti-IPO being pulled with the release of a draft paper on antitrust regulation for platform companies. In China, the anti-IPO, we think, was a very specific issue, one around financial market stability and the disintermediation of traditional financial institutions. And Ant's scale and rapid growth was 
creating some issues that the regulators really wanted to get comfortable with. And it was obviously that the timing of that was quite rushed. It happened very last minute. So all seemed quite dramatic and alarming. Whereas if you contrast that with the draft guidelines that were released, this is a continuation of anti-monopoly law development in China that's been ongoing for the past decade. And it's really about how to apply those laws to platform companies. If you go through the draft guidelines, they're all quite sensible in what they're discussing. It's it's nothing too drastic in there. The timing's quite measured. It's by its nature, it's a draft. So they are looking to consult with industry about this. So quite a different kind of context around the release of those two things. It's also the same issues that are being dealt with around the world. This isn't something that's unique to China. These are the same issues being dealt with that we kind of spoke about regarding Facebook and other companies in many other countries. Netflix is a recent addition to the portfolio. Could you share the underlying investment case with us and why we have so much conviction in this name? Certainly. The underlying thesis is that Netflix is competitively advantaged in streamed video, that streamed video has a very long runway for growth, and that Netflix has significant pricing power that it will be able to exercise over time. So let me expand on those factors. Starting with the competitive advantage, streamed video is a scale game, both globally and locally, due to the scalability of content. And no one has more scale than Netflix. It has nearly 200 million subscribers, and it's adding around 30 million new subscribers each year. So continuing to build that scale advantage. Now, in addition to that global scale, Netflix is also the leader in a lot of individual countries, and not just in terms of its subscriber count, but in terms of its knowledge of those markets. It's been operating in many markets for five to 10 years, and it understands consumers' tastes for content. It's been developing local content to meet those tastes. It's been building distribution partnerships with local wireless and other internet companies, for example, that really get its product out there. And outside of Amazon, that's very unique. So a lot of the traditional big media companies are still very focused on the US. They haven't even rolled out kind of these general entertainment streaming services on a global basis yet. So that provides a very strong head start for Netflix, even though penetration in some of those markets today is quite low. In terms of that penetration being quite low today in many markets, that leads me to the second point in terms of that long runway for growth. Despite having 200 million subscribers, we think Netflix can add another 200 million over the next decade, reaching close to 400 million subscribers by 2030, which is obviously very attractive. The last point we'd make is around pricing power. So Netflix currently charges around 10 US dollars a month for its service. That's about the price of a movie ticket. In return for that, you obviously get a huge catalogue of content that's constantly refreshed in terms of new movies, new TV shows, with content for the whole family. And we think that has been very important to driving adoption of the service. That's a very strong value proposition, but it also provides Netflix an opportunity to steadily increase prices over time. And we think that combination of steadily increasing prices and the ability to continue to grow subscribers for a long period will be very attractive for Netflix shareholders. As a Netflix addict myself, it's fascinating to learn more about the business behind it and why Magellan has now invested in it. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Jen. And thank you all for tuning in today and supporting our podcast, Magellan in the Know. We have an exciting lineup of speakers next year and look forward to sharing more of the big conversations with you from the end of January. We wish you all a very happy holiday season. Thank you. 
For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program.